Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, folks. Welcome back to another installment of the Napoleonic Wars pod and another installment of War of 1812 month. A quick favor to ask. If you're loving the show, can you do me a quick favor? Drop a like wherever you're listening to this. Sub to make sure you can find your way back and share it with a friend. Three really simple things that'll help me reach a much wider audience much faster. If you are particularly loving the show and you feel like giving it a stellar review, head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five-star or four-star or three-star or two-star or even one-star review of the show. Please feel free to add a comment as well. It's another really good way for me to be able to reach out to more people and it makes so much of a difference you wouldn't even believe. If you are a mega fan of the show, bear in mind that you can get your hands on even more of this podcast by heading over to Patreon and subscribing. For just £1 a month, you can get an additional four or more hours of podcasting content every single month because this podcast has gone weekly over on Patreon. There are a whole host of other perks if you fancy other things besides Obviously, I do understand that times are hard right now, so I totally get that many of you won't be in the mood for it. There is a much longer explanation of the different perks and what you get and all the rest of that. Um, If you've got any questions, drop me a line on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. But the most important thing I would like you to do is to take the time today to go and tell somebody how much they mean to you. It's important to spread the love at any time of year and in the run-up to Christmas, it's more important than ever. So be sure to tell somebody you love them and I'll catch you very soon. Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Napoleonic Wars podcast and another instalment of War of 1812 month. This is, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be up front right at the start of this. I am completely ignorant today. Well, I'm ignorant most days, what's new? But I'm particularly ignorant about this one. We are looking at women in the War of 1812. We're going to look very specifically at the experience of women in British Canada 
during this period as it was then modern day calendar, obviously, before somebody gets very angry with me. Um, and to do this, I'm joined by Severin Anjou. Have I pronounced the surname correctly there? I've tried to go French, and normally when I try to go French, I fail catastrophically. It's almost there. It's Angers. Okay, so close, but not quite. Um, <laughs> Severin is a PhD researcher at York University. She did her master's at Kingston, Ontario, and she's part of the 18th Century Research Centre, and she has written about exactly this, women in the War of 1812. So this is going to be a really interesting session, again, taking a kind of different line on the War of 1812 and approaching it from a kind of social angle that we wouldn't normally expect. Severin, great to see you. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing well, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me today, and I hope you're well too. Uh, thank you for caring, first of all. It makes a nice change. Um, but yeah, this is going to be good. And I, as I say, I approach this from a position of ignorance. So I'm going to start with what seems like a very dumb question, which is about the difference or not mm -hmm. between life for women in Canada prior to the War of 1812 compared to those living in the UK. Do you see societal differences and differences in expectations for these women? Uh, yes, I'd say like the um, life for women in Canada first differs a lot from the UK because of the environment. Like Canada is a huge territory. It's still very wild at the time. So you have a few urban centers. Uh, uh, you have Halifax and Nova Scotia, which is the, uh, the main one there. Then you will have you'll have Quebec City, uh, Montreal, and in uh, Upper Canada you have uh, Kingston, which was the biggest city, only a thousand people living there, and then Niagara and York, um, and the rest of uh, the territory is very very rural. So most of Canadian women live their life in the wilderness, really in the much uh, harsher weather where they have to adapt to uh, winter that's one thing that comes uh out a lot when they uh, like british women that move to canada they write a lot they're obsessed with uh, the weather so some things don't change because we we still are really and uh so they have to adapt to their their activities to um like it was quite uh, common to just go and meet with neighbors or like social calls was a huge part of uh, women's daily life in the UK that's not one thing something you can do when you're living almost isolated on your little farm so that's one of the big things the adaptation to the environment there is also the meeting of new people uh, so you have some populations that have been there for generation if you're if you're thinking about lower canada you have families established there since the beginning of the 17th century and you have other families that just waves of immigrants that uh, arrived after so the old population is quite adapt does not really consider itself european uh still is much more and um, much more that identifies with the uh, Canadian uh, territory, whereas the, the new ones still uh, have a very strong British uh, identities. And they tend also to be um, curious about the indigenous peoples that are living there. So that's one thing to, to take. Uh, they, uh, they have a lot of uh, relation contacts with the indigenous people too. So that's one thing they have to, uh, uh, to get used to. And also, well, I talked about like the how wild Canada is. So yeah, the 
the idea of Canada as a new land to exploit and clear, that's another adjustment too, because the social markers that prevailed in England not necessarily hold true here, like having a landed estate in Britain, that's a sign of social prestige. You have wealth, but that's not the same thing in Canada because land is given freely to anyone. So just a poor farmer can have as much land as someone that was like uh, considered a gentleman in Britain. So they have to navigate through these new uh, realities in Canada. Yeah. And you were saying there about contacts with indigenous people, mm -hmm. how, how do they approach those? Do you get, oh, I'm sure you do get all kinds of stereotypes kind of being thrown in there, but just talk us through that dynamic. Um, yes, so there's uh, this uh, dynamic of um, uh, the Europeans coming in uh, trying to use the indigenous people to their uh, advantage like for uh, military and economic uh, alliances so that's a big one too but they've been uh, they were in contact um, they had alliances with uh, the indigenous people since the very beginning of the colony so they are very uh, entangled to them uh, the markets like they will uh, uh, some indigenous people will come to sell their products to markets in the city uh, centers. So uh, they will come to see the to the governor's castle, for example, in uh, Quebec City to negotiate alliances. So it's really a part of uh, their daily lives for a long time to be in contact with them. And in terms of sort of the surviving material about these, mm -hmm. women, what are we looking at here? Is it sort of generally? the case that we might expect that you know we have better records for the upper echelons of society and for your inverted commas average woman coming from uh, a less rich background we just don't have much at all uh, yes so uh, that's still um uh, as you can expect yeah women from the upper social echelons they le left a lot more uh written sources for us to uh, to work with uh, it's a lot of correspondence uh with their families they wrote a lo lot back to their families in uh, britain uh, it was quite common at the time to keep uh, diaries so a lot of them uh, have uh, remained uh so for women of the upper uh, social echelons that's the main sources that we're looking at uh, but we're quite uh, lucky here because um, like parish records are extremely well kept and that's one way to access to have some information about uh, on women from the lower social strata so from marriage baptism records you can uh, learn about their familial social background reconstruct their uh, social network so that's one great uh, sources that we have and one that I particularly like it's the judicial records so for crimes uh, happening in the urban centers so yes you learn about uh, what sort of crimes the social issues that were um, happening at the time but also from the depositions of witnesses sometimes they are quite detailed about living environments and uh, even the clothes and the social uh, relationships of people so that's one way to it wasn't the purpose of these sources at first but uh, indirectly we can have access to yeah to these women of uh, that can remain invisible quite easily if you don't look read against the grain a bit i'm instantly interested in the judicial records you knew i would be um yeah <laughs> tell me 
my reputation clearly precedes me now. Yeah. Um, tell me a bit about what some of these women are being tried for, because there must be cases of women being brought before the courts. Yes. So um, you have a lot. It's um, like some uh, fights with uh, neighbors, uh, like uh, women uh, accused of having insulted uh, someone in a, in a city or of having a, there's a case of a tanner in Quebec City that complains about a soldier's wife that had attacked his assistant. So that's one thing we see uh, a lot for selling liquors or alcohol without a license. That's one that comes uh, back a lot. I've seen also cases of yeah attacks with knives, uh, but also uh, women are often victims too in these uh, judicial records. So uh, you have cases um, I've looked at a, a few cases of uh, women that have been murdered by their uh, husbands. So that gives us a lot of information, yes, about their uh, living environment. And also it's very varied and it, the terms can be quite vague and mean a lot, like uh, insulted. OK, that can go, be anywhere from just uh, uh, like the man was in a bad mood that day and just didn't uh, agree, like a small disagreement or very harsh um, words being said. So yeah, but very, very cases. I also want to kind of discuss these women and their their life, because this is the era, isn't it, of, sort of the domestic versus the private sphere, mm -hmm. um, which obviously gains even greater traction uh, as you move further into the 19th century. So how active are these women able to be in local politics and in terms of tackling local issues, because there have always been ways that women have been able to exert influence. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of how that influence is kind of spun and stated. Yes, so uh, the private public sphere, that's uh, still a very strong debate among uh, historians, like how much can we even use these uh, terms to talk about uh, women at the time, because we see they're very uh, active in, public life too, like a lot of women would run inns, uh, would run shops. Uh, one of the big difference too between the UK and Canada is women living in lower Canada. Uh, they're not submitted to the common law, they're submitted to the French civil law, so the coutume de Paris, which means that it's a bit uh, more beneficial to them, like they can still uh, retain some properties that they've inherited from their parents. So. Some women, yeah, have uh, money on their own and can use it to uh, run their own uh, shops. And also that's one thing that um, that we see. Uh, yeah, women uh, working at the market and all. Uh, but also women of the upper uh, social echelon, they can um, be active in the local politics through uh, the social events they're holding in their houses. So it's considered like private events because it's being held in their homes. Like if they have, they have dance parties or just uh, yeah, have inviting uh, some of their friends over to have tea and all. Uh, but it's very small so societies at these places. Like everyone knows everyone. So it's very important to maintain good relationships to um, like hold uh, your social position. So in that way, like women, they keep, they also work with their husband most of the time like to to have him like secure his uh, social position whether it be like uh, the 
governor general like they change quite a lot every few years so it's very important for them to come and to assert their authority to build very quickly social relationships so their wives will play a big part um, in that and you also have uh, women they have sons that would like maybe to have a commission in the in the British army so they will uh yeah work talk to women just give a good word you know uh, to um help them secure uh yeah a commission in the army so that's ways they are can get involved in the in politics and more the public life of the colony do you see people coming over from England and kind of looking at the situation in Canada and kind of going hmm I'm not sure that's okay because of kind of a distinction in terms of attitudes between metropolitan colony. Uh, yes so uh, that's one thing um, like people of British descent in the colonies if they were born in the colony they are not considered real British uh really there's like a social uh there's like a hierarchy of Britishness if I can put it uh, uh that way there's um one uh woman she's the uh, Anne Ilbert she was the wife of a captain of the Royal Artillery and she arrived in Quebec in 1807 and uh, yeah she meets a uh, a family who said that their son was back in England hoping to find a true English wife so it's not considered yes yeah, so there's this uh, um, difference here um, but also for some and it was uh, an opportunity coming to the uh, colony could climb the social ladder much more uh, quickly than as they stayed in um, in Britain, especially through a, a marriage in the records that I found you have ensigns and lieutenant that married very young, which is something quite unusual because they were not supposed to uh, have the financial means to get married. But in the, the colonies, yeah, they had new opportunities for that. So they uh, some tried to make the most out of it. That's interesting. I, I guess we need to kind of, start talking about the war itself don't we mm -hmm. um let's start with the beginning i guess that's usually a logical yeah. place to start um yeah. and reactions to the news of the outbreak of the war because there are two ways that you could logically take this one is oh mm -hmm. great this is you know rural britannia all the rest of it you know all of those cliches um mm -hmm. this is gonna go well and then there's the other fact of it which is that the contemporary perceptions are that Britain will not do well on land. Mm -hmm. And if you're living in Canada during this period, that's a really dangerous mm. kind of situation to face. And that's quite scary. So how do, well, I guess, what's the general reaction amongst Canadians, but then also specifically from women, how do they kind of respond to that and, and try and factor that into their daily lives? Uh, yes. So, uh, well, first, uh, the war really wasn't, a surprise that's very obvious from uh, uh from the records it was really expected like uh, uh papers in the months before they were already like calling men to to arms and and also it's really not um a surprise and more and more troops were sent had been sent to the colony in the expectation of the outbreak uh, um of the war so we know some of the reactions of the women but it depends also on where they are in the colony like you won't react the same way if you're in Niagara where yeah the 
the war would take place. Uh, uh, and then if you're like in Halifax, so quite far from uh, the theaters uh, of war. So like the um, wife of the general governor of um, uh, in Nova Scotia, so Lady Catherine Sherbrooke, uh, in her diary, she wrote, of the day she learned uh, that Canada and, um, and the US were at war. And she said that she felt very melancholic and uncomfortable and that it was hard for her to shake her mind um, around this idea uh, that, the, that there was war. So it's one thing to know it's gonna happen when you know it's actually happening. Uh, that's something else. Uh, in Quebec City, the daughter of the governor also wrote in her diary that she was summoned into the midst of her French lesson uh, by her mother to tell her so America is uh, um, as declared war against England. And her diary is very, very entertaining to read. She's just 17. She just writes everything that she thinks it's uh, yeah, good fun. And uh, for her, like it's um, it thinks it's uh, that uh, Yankees are abominable really and that how they dare, you know, declaring war on uh, England and also she's very uh, uh, patriotic. And yeah, but she also, thinks it's a good thing that war happened during uh, when her fa father was uh, governor because she believed a lot in his uh, uh, in his military uh, talents and when we know what happened with governor Prevo at the time yeah, maybe she was a bit biased but that was her reaction good thing it happened when that is uh, in charge and and if we move uh, further like west around uh, the place where the fighting will actually take place so around the Niagara in what is today uh, Ontario. Uh, it's a very interesting place when you go there because you have the St. Lawrence River that gets very, very narrow at that part around uh, Kingston and a bit before um, uh, Brockville, uh, Prescott and all. And you're on one side in Canada and you look at the other side of the river and it's the US, it's so close really. Uh, so these, on both sides, like they were used to have a lot of contacts, you know, they were dealing with uh, uh, the other side daily. There were, the communities were well integrated. You have, you had marriages happening, trading, uh, socializing across the borders. So after the war is declared, it's like, okay, this can no longer happen. So it's a big change in their uh, daily uh, uh, habits in, in the customs, so they have to change their way of trading. Uh, those that were considered friends are now uh, anyway. So one of the, the reaction of these population re living really, really close to the river, river was to move out of the range of the fighting. So they moved in uh, to the interior of the land. So that was their reaction. I, I guess the, the logical follow-on to that is then Kind of experiences of the war i mean you're talking about evacuations if you're going to pick everything up and move it mm -hmm. you effectively become a refugee within your own country in order to flee war but we're talking about an era when sure you've got public subscriptions which can be a way of providing relief but there isn't a huge amount of support coming from the state during this period unsurprisingly yeah. so uh, i guess let's start with with those people you know those who are fleeing this this conflict, and we'll talk about victims of, of soldier violence and so on in, in due course, but those who are fleeing, what's life like for them and how do they go about sort of trying to establish some semblance of normality 
in a conflict that, that ebbs and flows, you know, that you've got multiple attempts to invade Canada during this conflict. Uh, yes, so uh, for the most of uh, the families who, who fled, they went to, if they had relatives, that's where uh, they would go, uh, where they would go first. Um, but a lot of uh, families did not have the luxury of having relatives that they could, could take refuge to. So they would, uh, usually when there was uh, an attack, there was what they called the flight of the ladies, all the women and children would um, uh, uh, flee the place for a few days and then come back trying to save what was left. And so a lot of families had to yeah, live through the war in their what was left um, of their their homes. So it's a new sort of a new normality that has to install it. So life having to flee becomes some sort of a, a, not a routine, but something to get used to and that they know they will have um uh will have to do uh, at some point. Yeah, so you have um some uh women though they refused to leave uh the place. So that's uh one thing that we um that we can uh, observe too uh women that try they know that if they leave there's a chance that yes their house will be burned but after the troops that come in they will ransack and steal everything so they want to stay just to guard uh their homes and the few belongings that they have uh other families have relatives that can't just can't leave because they're too ill and also that's one of the reasons that uh some women will say to stay um to stay behind um but yeah we can have a sense that women they try to protect their properties the best uh they could either by staying there or by coming back as quickly as they can after the end of the fighting do we have any instances of women taking up arms to defend themselves their property their families you know you, you can kind of very quickly let your imagination go wild and just sort of imagine you know disgruntled canadian ladies picking up a, a horse pistol or something and saying look you're going to leave my house alone or you know something's going to happen but you know what's the reality uh yes well unlike in other conflicts in all one we have uh um, records of women that sometimes disguise themselves you know as uh, soldiers and all uh i haven't found any on the British Canadian side for this war. So maybe that's just because they've not been unveiled yet, but so far, uh, nothing. Uh, we do have some uh, anecdotes, yes, of women uh, having soldiers coming in and yes, strongly opposing to them uh, entering uh, their house. Um, but one of the um, way women take a part in the defense is by acting as spies or agents of informations because uh, women were less suspected of being uh, uh, spies and they were would not be usually as thoroughly searched as men would be and if they were caught uh, usually they would not have been executed just taken prisoners so there was hope that they would make it alive at the end of the war so yeah women were used a lot to convey uh, informations and to just bring uh, supplies and um, even in a occupied territory uh, and a territory occupied by the uh, by the uh, enemy so the mo most famous figure of that would be uh, Laura Secord uh, yeah we, in, um, in 18 
Uh, 13, yes, she uh, learned. We, it's not clear how she learned the information that uh, the Americans were planning an attack. So she walked uh, 20 miles through uh, occupied American territory to deliver uh, information to the British uh, forces that the Americans were planning an attack. And um, a few days after, uh, the British were able to intercept the American troops at the Battle of the Beaver Dams on the 24 June 1813. So, a British victory. So, that's uh, the famous uh, story of Laura uh, yeah. Secord. So, um, and I'm sure there are many other cases that are just not recorded, but um, women that were in charge of inns and all soldiers would stop by, talk, they could listen to conversations. And also there are many ways they could have helped uh, convey informations or just provide supplies and all, but that are not recorded. Did Laura Secord get any kind of reward for that? I mean, that, that's quite a significant contribution to the course of the conflict. <laughs> yes. you know? uh, not really during her lifetime. It's after the war that uh, she was recognized as a, what happened. And uh, usually only after the conflict, but she did receive some uh, money as a thank you for her service uh, during um, the war. And um, yeah, today, when we talk about the War of 1812 in our history classes here, she's always one of the figures that is put uh, up front. Uh, so, yeah. That's interesting. Do we know of any more? You know, is there kind of like a female spy network that's going on? Uh, I don't know about a big uh, network. There are some other names uh, like um, Anna Maria Greenville and Catherine Poole, both were from uh, Niagara, so really in the midst of conflict. And they both stayed there throughout the war. And so they were, uh, these two women are known to have delivered messages to uh, the British Army and delivered uh, supplies to both the troops and the militia. So we know these two women, but, uh, but uh, yeah, they, we can assume that they knew like they were putting themselves in dangers doing that. And despite all of this, they still decided to, uh, to go through. So they demonstrated a lot of bravery and sense of duties during uh, this war. And yeah, I'm sure there are others we have to go through uh, uh, other records to unveil them. So how are these women treated by their own side? And I mean that in the sense that you've only got to pick up a memoir mm -hmm. of British troops. Um, okay, so the famous one is going to be Spain and Portugal, but you can equally mm -hmm. pick up a memoir of British troops um, in, in Belgium um, during the Waterloo campaign. And you can very easily see that the line between friend and foe does get blurred when it comes to civilians. And civilians often end up on the receiving end of some pretty horrendous things, whether that's casual plundering or something even worse. So how do these women get treated by their own side? Do you, because in theory, you know, yes, they are British subjects. So the, the full hammer of both British military law, but also British civil, civilian law, mm -hmm should come down on them if they do any harm to them but it's a conflict zone things happen so just kind of talk us through how these women get treated by the british yes so um when uh, there's a sense that when there's an attack coming they try to plan to evacuate 
women. So um, there, there's a notion that yes, they are, um, uh, they are more vulnerable uh, to uh, to conflicts, and also there's a yeah an attempt to keep them uh, secure, and that's one thing that. Uh, soldiers and also militiamen because a lot of uh, troops were just civilians that had been uh, called for the duration of the war and they worry a lot about what might happen to um, their wives uh, back home. Uh, a few months before the outbreak of the war, one reverend wrote in the Kingston Gazette that uh, he called men to come and defend the colony just to think about what will happen to your woman. So it, that's a rhetoric that is used uh, a lot. So they know it's um, it's something that can happen. And yeah, as in uh, any words, even if in theory, they're not, soldiers are not supposed to harm children and women, that happens. So we have uh, yeah, some records of uh, physical uh, assaults, uh, aggressions on both Um women and children, uh, unfortunately. Um, also for uh, you, uh, one of the very significant group of women, it's army wives at that time period. So you have a lot of women just following the military train on campaign around the, uh, the Great Lakes. So these women, they're uh, submitted to military discipline and some it's divided the opinion on the army wives. Some think they're very useful to uh, the camps because they uh, do the washing, the laundry. They uh, are expected to act as nurses. So they're very um, essential um, uh, workers, uh, to use a jargon of our times. Um, but also some officers think they're a nuisance to discipline because if they're there, men tend to be not as focus as uh, they would be if their uh, wives and children were safe at home. And also some women were very hard to discipline, like uh, in their memoirs, you have officers saying that they're really harder to control than uh, men, especially those that have been, some women were born in the regiment and so were daughters of the soldiers, then became wife of the soldiers, widows, remarried, twice or even three times uh, in the regiment. So yeah, they had seen it all and um, did not, were not really threatened by uh, military, uh, um, military discipline, like it did not really uh, scare them. But um, so yeah, these uh, army wars, they were, uh, women were not that well considered by the army if we think in terms of uh, like, Pen, uh, pen, there were no pensions for them uh, at the time. Uh, the soldiers' pay did not cons uh, included him having a wife or uh, children. So it was a very precarious life for them. So it's more like, yes, you can uh, follow the train, but try to behave. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm curious. Apologies, folks. I know we've had a lot of crime and punishment rabbit holes during this <laughs> one, but um, you've probably got used to it now. So if you're sick of it, you probably stop listening anyway. Um, you mentioned about soldiers ill-treating women and it's what I find curious about that is that it's so readily dealt with Mm -hmm. by the army so how do those cases get handled do they get handed over to the the what I call the non-military judiciary Mm -hmm. um, or are they dealt with in-house because I found very few instances of it being dealt with in-house and I'm just curious if there's that tendency to go okay let's get the local judiciary to deal with this rather than making it an army matter um I've for uh, judicial records. I've looked at those mainly in the the area of Quebec City, and those cases of soldiers ill treating uh, women, they were dealt by the local uh, authorities. So it's the local coroner that will come and do its uh, uh, inquiry. So yeah, you find records of yeah, of um, a trial for soldiers next to trials by. Of, uh, of civilians so um but in the wartime i'm thinking it especially in remote areas where you don't have any judicial instances that yeah of uh, officers and yeah, military authorities had to deal with that so the environment uh, the physical like context where they are uh would influence yeah, how they would be trialed that's interesting folks you'll be relieved to hear that i have a list of questions that now won't get asked in my head (laughs) about all kinds of things to do with soldiers on trial within the judiciary but that's that fascinates me but we're here to talk about women in the war of 1812 and not crime and punishment so back to what we're meant to be talking about and you've touched on this one already but i just want to kind of give you the opportunity to say a bit more about it in terms of women's attempts to influence the the events that are going on around them you know this idea that they're not just passive bystanders mm-hmm. and they're not just relegated to the roles of um victims in in instances or of you know soldiers burning down their houses or, or whatever it might be yes there's this argument that you know you've got these traditional gendered roles treatment of the wounded arguably for women um in higher echelons of society you've got charitable work as well just just tell us a bit more about you know these different roles and the different ways that women are trying to kind of get involved in the situation i guess and and just kind of break down some of those conceptions that we might have of oh women always doing the gendered things yes well uh in war (laughs) time i'd say like the gender roles are becoming more uh, blurred, especially when it comes to uh, work on on farms, because uh, a lot of women find themselves alone holding uh, their farms with their husbands uh, gone to fight in um, with, um, with the militia. Uh, so usually, it's especially in the, these small uh, farms that were uh, 
like in the upper Canada, it's still very uh, pioneering like uh, societies. So you need at least two adults to keep a farm running. And in normal times, uh, the roles were clearly uh, divided. So women would take, would tend to uh, um, the poultry, to, uh, to cattle, just the clothing, food, uh, gardening and all, uh, while men were more plowing, planting, you know, harvesting and woodcutting. But with the men gone, it's, women that are in charge of all uh, these uh, these traditional and traditionally uh, men's tasks so that's one way that gender roles are blurred um, in a in wartime uh, but other uh, tasks that the women undertook were very much gender and what you would expect women uh, to do at the time like tending to the wounded, wounded uh, army wives were expected to act as nurses. And you can find in some uh, army regulations at the time, clear orders that army wives have to act as nurses. There will be consequences um, otherwise. And that's one thing that you see since like our uh, wolf came in 1759, he already at the time he said, well, when you have to ask our as nurses and it's one thing that just uh, keeps uh, coming back every time there's a, uh, an armed uh, conflict. Um, and also the charitable work, uh, women, especially in the operational of society, they felt it was a sign. Uh, yes, a call of duty, but also part of their uh, genteel uh, role really to undertake um, charitable. It was a way to assert their identities as women, you know, of um, the elite uh, circles. So they will get involved in the local uh, charities uh, they actively supported the loyal and patriotic societies of Upper Canada, who was founded at the very beginning of the war to help give relief to some families that were uh, directly affected by the wars and also to give some uh, recognition to uh, men, but also women that had uh, acted bravely uh, during uh, the war. And one thing also that I think is uh, important that we don't talk a lot about it's the emotional support that women would provide to their husband even at distance because uh, part of the experience of women at war is to stay behind but that doesn't mean they're not affected uh, there's one scholar it's a uh, Mary Favre who talks about wartime but as an affective experience so just being constantly uh, under anxiety um and on alarms at the time. So even if when you look at their lives, it seems, okay, it's quite quiet. You know, they keep do, going to their uh, social activities. They keep going on their walks, but there's still a strong anxiety that is um, there, like the shadow of war is very strong. And through the correspondence between wives and husband, we can see that yeah, they are strong emotional support like husband will write about their feelings on the war how they're tired these sometimes they lose like their purpose why are we doing this especially after a battle that has been especially bloody like they it was quite easy to forget why you're you're fighting in the first place so they would turn to their uh, wives for that and some wives also decided to accompany their husband uh, all the way like um the governor, uh, General Prevost, he was he was supposed to be based at Quebec, but was in Montreal most uh, during most of the conflict, and his wife uh, followed him. So it was their seventeen-year-old daughter that was really like holding uh, the fort back uh, uh, in Quebec. So um, 
yeah, that support made like knowing that yeah the the house was well taken care of was a relief for uh, men fighting. I, I'll, there are two ways to go with this next <laughs> bit, um, but I'm going to stay with kind of what you alluded to there, which is this kind of turning upside down a lot of these gender roles in the sense of, as you say, if you run a farm, you've got to, to just pull your socks up and get on mm. with the fact that life has to go on even though you know half of your family unit has been ripped out and has gone off to fight but of course we do talk a lot when we study 20th century conflicts about how a lot changes in in a number of senses that you know perceptions have changed or there's some kind of lasting benefit that is gained from women turning around and going look i did the job you did and i did it perfectly well just mm-hmm. think on that fact. Um, so does anything change when the men return or is it just back to the status quo almost immediately? Um, yeah, you get a sense that it's mostly back to the status quo because in the 20th century conflicts, women would uh, get out of their houses you know, to work in factories and all. Uh, whereas in during the war of 1812, they stayed in their house. So like they're living environment did not change that much they um so after if they kept uh, uh you know plowing and uh, you know cutting woods uh, uh after the war that's hard to tell because that's fortunately it's uh, uh it's people that don't tend to leave a lot of uh, of records so how did they go back uh to normal that's um that's quite hard <laughs> to say, uh, unfortunately, uh, for um, uh, women that were, that we have some records, well, if you, like Anne, um, Eleanor uh, Prevost, she was 17 during the war, and through her diary, we can see how she matures through, during uh, the conflict, like she's confronted to loss, uh, uh, she sees yeah, a very good friend having to to leave uh, fighting and not knowing if uh, they will uh, return so that made her think about what she wanted like would she does she want like to be like her mother and live the you know all the anxieties of being uh, the wife of an officer or so she was thinking a lot about her future or because of the war so that was a trigger and in the end she decided to stay a spinster she never married yeah that was uh, uh how she uh, she dealt with that so uh, that's the case i've looked most at but uh of obviously for women who lost their husband that changed a lot uh of things uh for officers you they would tend to know quite uh quickly like a letter would be sent uh, to them by one fellow brother officer to inform them of death but for wives of um, privates or women uh, or or wives of militiamen you don't really know if your husband is still alive or dead because there's no official system in place to inform them so that's one thing that some women have to live with like not knowing if they're still married or if they're a widow and it can go on for it's a situation that can last for years or even a lifetime if you never have any information well let's stay with that thing because i know that's what you're working on at the moment you know sort of ideas of mourning and mm-hmm. so on how i guess how does the mourning system work well, uh, apologies complete ignorance here but 
are you meant to kind of go into mourning? I know we kind of talk about the royal family doing that these days and we sort of go, oh yeah, that's a sort of olden times concept. It's something that I associate with the Victorian period, but Mm -hmm. everything has its origins somewhere. During the Georgian period, do you get families kind of having to do something like that? Uh, yes, you have some mourning clothing. It's nothing like the Victorian big mourning clothing. Uh, but yeah, it has its origin there earlier. And um, yeah, mourning in Georgian era, it's very underexplored. So it's very interesting because, you know, you can do a lot of things, but frustrating at times because yeah, there's not nothing <laughs> written on it. Um, so yeah, you could have some uh, mourning clothing and, you know, not going to as many social activities as they would have. So yeah, there's a period for mourning um, for sure that we can uh, observe. Um, also in um, in a wartime, well, it's very disruptive to the usual practices of mourning, uh, especially for families that were back in Britain and with like a family member gone fighting uh, in Canada. Uh, died there during one battle and then they have to mourn without a body because they can't repatriate the remains and usually all funerary practices were are around the body you know you have um i you have uh, yeah, the washing of the body usually the family's gathering around for the last moments then you have funerals the burial so you can't do any of that without a body so they have to adapt and find them um, new ways to uh, uh, commemorate the dead. So when that happened, under those circumstances, usually objects uh, take a very, very big uh, importance. So they will uh, hold on to some uh, miniatures, some uh, watches, anything that belonged or that remind them of the loved one, like will become their own private memorial. So apologies, folks, another rabbit hole coming here, but this one with our collective um, Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity mm-hmm. hats on with you being um, our international officer. Um, and it's about graves as sites mm-hmm. of memory. And this has been interesting me for a while as I've been visiting cemeteries and trying to assess graves and working out what is a priority for the charity and what isn't mm-hmm. in the sense that you'll have a family plot somewhere mm-hmm. And it will commemorate somebody, but then the the person who served isn't necessarily in the plot for any mm-hmm. variety of reasons. It could be that, uh, as you know, you're alluding to here, that they're buried in another country. It could be that there never was a body. It could be that the individual dies in, um, let's say, Ireland. You can't mm-hmm. transport the body back, so they have a grave in Ireland, but then they're commemorated in the local family plot. Do you get just plain empty graves? Do you get people kind of going, well, look, we're going to need a family plot anyway. So why don't we just take a plot? And I'm not suggesting, you know, that they bury an empty casket. And I mean, perhaps they do. I guess that's kind of one of the questions to ask here. But do you get things like that? Do you get kind of efforts to create a, a place, I suppose is what I'm getting at, where people can go. And I'm thinking here, and apologies, this is turning into a very long and rambly question, but I'm thinking of the memorial to um, Alexander Gordon mm-hmm. on the Waterloo battlefield, which folks, if you've mm-hmm. never seen it, 
basically it's this massive outpouring of grief i've never read an inscription that is so raw mm-hmm. in terms of giving you that indication of just how the family's heart was breaking mm-hmm. uh, at gordon's death do you get much of that you know attempts to create a place a focal point physical focal point as opposed to an object of commemoration over these men yes uh very much and yet the Alexander Garden is a great uh, example um, of that because having a, a graveyard that's um, one place to focus your grief, you have a sense that you can go and visit there. So it becomes part of uh, the ritual of mourning. So having uh, a place, it gives some tangibility to some materiality to death. And that's what's missing usually when you don't have um, a body to mourn. So I found. Um, uh, my research, I look more at uh, families in Britain, so I will uh, speak uh, talk uh, uh, on them. But uh, yeah, I find a lot of epitaph engraved on uh, yeah, memorials in their local church. It can be on their uh, estate. And in one um, that I read, it's it clearly states that it's, you know, in replacement of a grave. So that's how their memory will, uh, will live on through, um, uh, through this uh, epitaph and they make it's interesting because you have the sense that they have to mourn both like the family man and the soldier at the same time so you have uh they highlight both private virtues so how kind and good of a man he was but also the military uh virtues so how glorious his death uh, was so it there's really a pattern uh that you see on the way the, these inscriptions are are constructed the other thing I want to ask about is just to dig a little bit deeper in what you were saying about um, the fact that sometimes the news never comes home, mm-hmm. right? You know, private whoever ends up being buried in a mass grave. The records may not be clear because either records don't survive or they're not taken. Um, sometimes people, you know, go out and um, desert. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But equally, if you're on a retreat and you get left behind, nobody really mm-hmm. knows. Did you get made a prisoner? Did you desert to the enemy? Did you just die of exposure? How do families deal with that? Can you even deal with that? Because we always talk today about closure. And, mm-hmm. and this is kind of the definition of never getting closure. Yes. Uh, so that's very interesting because it's only at the end of the 18th century, like I, if I remember correctly, like in 1797, that officers had to actually record the men that died. So before that, the, it was not never thoroughly recorded, like some officers would, but it was not uh, mandatory. So before that, even if you a family wanted like to write to the war office, maybe they didn't have the answer. So um, after, uh, after that, when you, since you have, the information's families could write to the war office to see if maybe they have some more information about um, the fate of a, of a loved one. And you have some official forms that family is could fill sent to the war office hoping for, um, for a reply. And there was also a scheme that happened in the, I think it's 1809, that families could petition for uh, to retrieve the, the possessions and the money that was due to the uh, fallen soldiers. So some families could be informed of the death of a loved one 
because there was some money due to them. So the point was not to tell them that the loved one had died. It's just, well, here's some money that we, that we, that we owe you. Um, but yeah, if it's a prisoner of war, if the fate is unknown, even if the family wants to make a request, yeah, they might never have a, an answer. And um, yeah, so that's one thing that women spending the rest of their life not knowing if they were widow, if they were uh, still married. And yeah, it's must have been terrible to deal with. Like you, you don't know how you're supposed to keep uh, going for this time period. No research has been done, but that's one thing that could be very interesting to dive in. But some research has been done for the uh, seven years war and you have some women that dealt with that differently some never remarried like hoping that one day their husband would come back you have some that did remarry and then their husband showed up a few years after so that could happen yeah and when they would have had like children with their second husband so it's a whole com very complicated uh, situations to deal with so I'm thinking we could have some similar situation for the war of 1812. I mean, you've just covered both what was going to be my next question there. <laughs> so nice one, thank you for that. But yeah. also you've done the segue beautifully. So I was gonna ask kind of, where do we go next with all of these kind of areas? And I'm not just talking about the, the, the kind of grief and mourning process, but also about understanding the experiences of women during this conflict. What are your thoughts on the big studies that need to be done and you know the big questions that we need answers to yes well uh i think some um yeah more research needs to you know what we just touched on like how have a losing um husband can impact uh women like does it change her way of uh living does uh does she become more like this is like financially but also all the uh, emotional struggles that uh, can bring so that's definitely one thing I think we need more so there's some um, questions also about the lower uh, a woman from belonging to the lower social strata because there are so few records that we need to use those that we do have and try to yeah, read them differently to try to gather more information to unveil their individual um, experiences and it's fascinating how some um if you, you're thinking about general orders to uh, like a regiment uh, stationed in Canada uh, these order will answer to some problems or specificities to the place where the regiment is stationed so from that you can sense okay there were some uh problems with women because they say that we need they need to be more um uh, more carefully like taken in charge or or uh, looked after and also that's one way to deal with that and also when thinking with about women it's they're closely tied with families and that's one and children that are often mentioned always in relations to women but I'm thinking they do have their own stories to be told too so that's one thing I'm uh, very interested in how children experience these events too and but they're even harder than women to <laughs> track down so that would be an interesting challenge how did you get into all of this then uh, well at first it's because of my job I'd worked for years as a tour guide at Parks Canada in my uh, 
hometown and we were we would tour um like the fortifications of Quebec City but also old military uh barracks and during our trainings we would get all the information you know, we would have to tell uh visitors and army wives were mentioned but that was it so I asked do we have more information about them and no not really there wasn't a lot of of things so I was just curious and my curiosity just led me to do my MA dissertation on uh, army wives in the Quebec City uh, garrison during uh, the time period we just uh, talked about and yeah so it's just a my student job that brought me here today <laughs> and from there you end up doing a phd out of interest yeah. why do a phd over here and i don't mean that in a rude sense at all <laughs> in the slightest but i'm just curious i i um had a somebody i knew who was working at the, the national archives uh, who i'd get talking to um during my trips up there who said that she deliberately she was australian and she deliberately mm -hmm. came and did her doctorate in the UK because she felt the arguments um, back in Australia were just too parochial. And so she just wanted to get away from all of that. Now, I'm not asking you to sort of start naming and shaming whether or not particular <laughs> professors in Canada just made you think, no, you know what, I need to come over to the UK and get away from this. Or That's not what I'm getting at. I'm sure the Canadian professors are absolutely lovely. But why... Why do a, a PhD over here? Uh, well, for my research interests, I was uh, I wanted to pursue looking at um, British military uh, families. It made a lot of sense for me, like to go to uh, to the UK also to be closer to archives, um, and all. And also, I wanted to have an international experience just to see how things are done uh elsewhere because it's different questions when you have um it's very fascinating how we're not taught history the same way and like the uh, um it's not the same events that uh, we learn about uh and also it's a very interesting confrontation like uh, uh i remember when i first moved to the uk i was i would hear like other PhD students talking and feeling like i don't know anything because they were talking about all these historical figures and authors that I had never really heard about because we focus on others um, in uh, Canada so I wanted yet to uh, yet to uh, benefit from uh, an international experience for that and so I spent a lot of hours you know browsing uh, university websites to find a supervisor and uh, yeah it uh, worked out uh, in the end. I'm curious, I will stop asking awkward <laughs> questions about, about this in a second, but I'm just curious about the distinctions. What's different about the Canadian model to how the British do it? Um, mainly about what the, the, the focus uh, of things like in um, history course, uh, um, we do see a bit of, you know, world history, but it's really focused like Canadian uh, history so we will start go very briefly around you know like the um, ancient Greece and Rome Middle Ages but very very briefly and then uh, we look a lot about on them um, you know the French uh, explorers that first came in the 16th century and then the settlement of colonies and all but also what's interesting in Canada is that each province is responsible of its education system so the focus is not the same depending on the province where you're going so when I did my MA in uh, 
Ontario, they learned about the like the French period of Canada, but not really. And there was one student that was from British Columbia and she had never really heard about Champlain and, and all because they focus much more on the uh, on the railway and the, the gold rush and all. So um, even in Canada, there are some confrontations. So yeah, to the uh, UKD um, events uh, are not uh, the same way. The focus on the like Middle Ages, the Tudor period is much bigger in the in the UK also the books that we have to read like uh authors uh, and also yeah <laughs> don't get me started on the Tudors and how they might <laughs> just be a teeny tiny incy wincy ever so slightly bit catastrophically overdone because there yes. are about 10,000 books on them I say that with a lot of love and interest for the Tudor period but <laughs> there are other periods out there folks you know yes they're very interesting but there's like Firstly, there's more to the period than Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. Can mm -hmm. I just get that off my chest? I'm sorry. Yes. We've gone a long way from <laughs> the Napoleonic period. But Severin, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. You are on social media, I believe. Do you wish people to find you on social media or would you rather just kind of quietly observe? Uh, well, they can, but I'm really just there to follow people. I don't really post anything, so I'm not sure it will be beneficial for them to find me. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. We'll we'll leave you lurking anonymously in the, the background of Twitter. But Sarin, it's been absolutely fascinating. Do let me know when the PhD is done, because I suspect we could, well, in fact, before the PhD is done, because we can very easily talk a great length about mourning during this period and graves and other related um, elements. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you again in the new year. Yes, thanks for having me. It's been fascinating talking with you. Thanks. Folks, remember what I said at the start. Please remember to like, subscribe and share with a friend. Three simple things that make a huge difference. If you're particularly loving the show, why not head over to Apple Podcasts where you can leave a five-star review and make sure you add a comment as well so that I can get your feedback on what's working on the show. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. You can get your hands on bonus content hours upon hours of um, additional material, episodes on uh, the Marshalls, on the American Revolution, exclusive chats uh, on a wide range of things, in addition to a whole host of perks. Make sure that you avail yourself of those benefits if you are inclined. Obviously, I completely understand that that may not be for everybody, and whatever support you're able to give, it means a huge amount whatever form it takes. Particular shout-outs. Those who are mentioned in dispatches are Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gombau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, and James Fluick. The Admirals are David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals are Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, that's J.C. Kaiser, and the Legion to Scholars, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. 
I'll be back very soon. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. A very Merry Christmas to you all. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.